Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. Last year, the film writer and director, Taika Waititi, sparked debate when he declared New Zealand racist and recounted being racially profiled as a teenager. The Human Rights Commission also reports that local instances of racism are on the increase. How do those who have never been subject to racism begin to understand the experiences of those who have? And is there an expectation that those who are the targets of casual and or explicit racism must explain the indignities and implications of being perceived as other? Four eloquent writers bring their experiences and stories to the stage for a nuanced exploration of racism in our University of Auckland Festival Forum, Everyday Acts of Racism. Join Canadian David Cherianti, German writer Jenny Erpenbeck, and Leonie Hayden and Victor Roger from New Zealand in a session chaired by Carol Hirschfeld. We hope you enjoy it. I don't know exactly what brought you out tonight, but for me it is the power of that word, racism. For as long as I can remember, it's a word that's made me sit upright coiled, cautious. It's caused me to forensically be alert to language and behaviours, and at times silent and still. There's been plenty of heat too, the flush of shame, the hot, hurtful sting of defensive anger. My relationship with this word has also opened me up to something else though, which as life has gone on is something I've grown to deeply value and that is the experience of being different. And tonight we're gonna to look at the world experienced by this amazing group of writers who have each sought to articulate their knowledge of being different, of being other. And I know they're going to do it with a great deal of insight and some humor because that's what tends to happen when you talk the truth about being human. In her 2017 book, The Origins of Other, American writer Toni Morrison reminds us of an ugly truism, and that has abundant examples in Western literature. Humans seek to build up their own security and control through creating a catalogue of otherness that dehumanizes. As she puts it, why should we want to know a stranger when it's easier to estrange another? Why should we close the distance when we can close the gate? At the same time, Morrison points to the responsibilities and obligations of writers, in particular how fiction provides a controlled wilderness, an opportunity to be and to become the other, the stranger, with sympathy, clarity, and the risk of self-examination. So what do our writers think about this, and how does it relate to what they do? And to return to a key premise of our session, how much is it up to those who experience racism? Is it to explain the effects to those who haven't? I am going to introduce this wonderful panel of speakers alphabetically, and after we've had our discussion, I will open the floor to questions. So let's begin with our intros. David Chariandi. Like the boys who feature in his second novel, Brothers, writer and teacher David Chariandi was raised in Canada, the son of working class immigrants from the Caribbean. In his book, and in this book rather, and his previous novel, Sukiyan, David examines the vulnerabilities and heroism of ordinary working class lives. 
And in his most recent non-fiction publication, I've been meaning to tell you, he writes to his teenage daughter about race, identity, and the meaning of belonging. And we thank the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of David being here. Welcome, David. Thank you. Jenny Erpenbeck's latest novel, Go Went Gone, deals with the cultural collision that continues to play out with the ongoing African refugee crisis that continues in Europe. Described as profound, unsettling, and subtle, her story seeks to understand the distance that needs to be traveled for there to be true human connection. Jenny is the author of seven novels and has received numerous awards, and she's with us thanks to the kind assistance of the Goethe Institute. Welcome, Jenny. Nita Fiazi had just turned five when she arrived as a refugee in this country. Her journey to Aotearoa was fraught with danger and risk. Her mother fled Afghanistan with her tiny daughter, first to Malaysia and Indonesia, and on to, then on to Nauru, where they were incarcerated in a camp with other stateless asylum seekers. Hamilton is now the place she calls home, and she, that is also where she is finishing her Bachelor of Arts in Writing Studies. Welcome, Nita. If you listen to On The Rag, the sharpest, funniest feminist podcast currently being made in New Zealand, you'll recognise one of our panellists, journalist Leonie Hayden. She is one of the co-hosts. Leonie, Nati Fatua Ki Kaipara, Nati Rango, is also the editor of Atea, the Māori content channel at the spin-off. And to boot, she's the former editor of Mana magazine and Rip It Up. Welcome, Leonie. And while Victor Roger is well known as an award-winning Pacifica playwright, he actually began his writing career as a journalist in his hometown of Christchurch. He, in part, wrote his first play, Sons, so he could see himself on stage. He said back in 2017, there was nothing representing that point of view. Now there's a new wave of chocolate goodness barreling through. Brown is the future of the arts. Welcome, Victor. <laughs> Guys, that was massive introduction, but let us begin with our short title, Everyday's, uh, Everyday Acts of Racism. Racism. I want to begin there because I want to see if we can define it to some extent. David, in, in your book, there is an incident that occurs that seems to fit the bill brilliantly. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, well, um, uh, first, I'm, I'm tremendously honored to be here in, in Auckland, and um, it is my first time here. Um, I guess I, I say that because I, uh, it's always difficult to know um, how to introduce um, a topic like racism to an audience that you don't know very well, but I'll, I'll give it my best shot. Um, my last book uh, is a, a letter to my 13-year-old daughter, a work of nonfiction. And um, it goes back, it opens by describing a moment when she was about two and a half, and I took her out to uh, uh, a grocery store buffet, uh, you know, selling those absurdly overpriced, you know, uh, foods that my parents would laugh at me for, <laughs> for, um, for purchasing. But it was a special event, and I took my daughter, and we'd sit, uh, sat down, and we were enjoying a piece of chocolate cake. And uh, she got started to get the giggles because she was filled with sugar and had that kind of rush that a two, two and a half year old gets when 
when you've given them too much sugar. Um, we got thirsty, and I stood to go to a, a water fountain not too far away from us um, to fill up our glasses of water. And um, I noticed that there was a woman who rose at about the same time to get um, some water for herself. Um, I guess, uh, I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to flatter myself, but I think, I like to think of myself as a polite person. Um, I wonder if that's how I've survived, by, by being polite, because the consequences when I'm ordinary, not especially polite, can be very severe. And that's maybe the first way I'd, I, I might talk about the effects of, of racism, to know that. Um, but I saw the person approaching her at the same time, and I would do this anyway, I, I just stopped to allow that person to go first to the fountain. And, um, but that didn't satisfy her. She shouldered herself, you know, past me in a very demonstrable way. Uh, this wasn't, you know, she wouldn't allow me to, to, to offer this act of, of kindness, I guess. And uh, she was filling up her glass of water, and she turned and said, um, um, uh, I deserve to, to do this. I belong here. I was born here. Um, and so I, I, offer, I, I offer this in my book, not because that's, I don't, I don't think that's that ordinary. I mean, I, sorry, extraordinary. It's not that it happens every day, but that's something that, that, that happens in my life. You know, there will be times when people will say stupid things to me. Maybe, depending on who you are, people will say stupid things to you. Um, and stupid things coded in this case racially. I was born in the same country as she was but she was reading me and assuming that I could not be. And of course, being born in a country doesn't mean that I, I am or am not entitled to a glass of water. That's the, the most, most absurd thing, of course, right? <laughs> that very logic is, is an absurdity. Um, so um, I waited for her to finish. Um, I guess I could have been upset. I could have challenged her in some sort of way. I could have risked getting upset and angry and that's another thing I don't really have the luxury to do. Being in this body, I don't have, always have the luxury to get angry publicly at this person, and she was a white woman, a white woman, because the consequences, I know, can be, can be com complex. And so I'm, I'm sorry to be going no, on in, no. this, in, this, in this way. Well, but, I do want to come back to politeness with everybody, though, because I think it's right. a really important point. But I guess um, I had a choice in that moment, and really this is what I wanted to get to. Do I confront the person in this moment um, and risk getting angry and, um, and make a scene in front of my daughter in that particular moment? We had just been enjoying something, we'd just been laughing together, having a father and son moment, very precious moment. And I don't want to ruin that moment with what is happening. And I noticed that she was still laughing after all of this had happened because she did not understand what had happened. She didn't understand that this was an act of racism. And so I didn't say anything. And I took my glass of water and sat down with her. And I started smiling to, because she, was, she had been smiling the whole way. And I'm such a good actor. And that's another thing. You know, I, it's a reason why I'm a good actor because I don't want people to know when they've hurt me, because in the context in which I grew up, that was the invitation for more of it. Um, 
And, um, and so um, I, I was acting as I feel brilliantly, putting on a certain face. And then suddenly my daughter stopped laughing and said, what happened? And I wanted to start my book that way um, simply because it was an ordinary act of racism. Um, uh, it also illustrated when, when do I say something? When do I talk to my daughter about what has happened? Especially when I have the option seemingly not to say anything. And the very last thing that I, I felt was very important about that, that moment was um, the fact that my daughter knew something had happened, um, knew that something was wrong, felt the energy in me, felt the emotion in me, even when I was trying to conceal it. And I think that's how racism works too. When racism isn't expressed, uh, your children, your loved ones feel it. They understand. There is no secret to racism. There is no real decision whether or not to talk about it or to keep it a secret. Um, it is there, and, uh, and that's why I had to write this book. Why did you write the book? Oh, I, I wanted to, with great humility and humbleness, I wanted to share my particular experience of racism, knowing that my daughter would have a different experience, being in a different body, uh, being a, a woman of color, not a man of color, um, being in a different generation. At least that's why I thought that, oh, you'll have a different experience. And I guess I also wrote the book fearing that maybe you won't have a different experience in certain ways. Uh, the hopes that every parent has had for generations, or at least, at least my parents, that things are getting better. And we just have to keep moving. It's, uh, you, know, the, you know, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice, that sort of, that sort of uh, notion. Um, the, the book starts with, with incidents when my daughter is now 13, the election of Trump, a, a shooting in which people, in Canada, Quebec City, in which uh, a white nationalist came into a mosque and, caught, and yes. shot people uh, at prayer, murdered people. Um, and um, I guess those moments prompted me to wonder, um, not to wonder, to know that um, silence is not an option. As you've been talking, David, I've noticed that um, a couple of our other panellists have been nodding and some, your words are obviously resonating. So, Leonie, I, I want to pick up on this issue of politeness, I suppose, yes. around behaviour and whether that was something that you thought about and was conscious of as you grew up. Something that just popped into my head that is, um, I, don't, I don't ever consciously think about this because it's so unconscious, is a hangover from being followed around shops so much by security people as a kid and as a teenager mm. and even as an adult. Um, that one thing I do now to reassure everyone, when I walk into a shop, I do this with my hands and my yeah. sleeves and make sure as I'm walking around the shop that people can see my hands aren't in my pockets, I haven't put anything in my pockets. And I do that just totally instinctively now at the age of 30 something. And 
it's it's so instinctive that yeah, I don't know. It was when yeah you sort of picked up on politeness. It, it, that's not being polite, but it is sort of like a making sure that you're not putting anyone, you know, making sure people are comfortable with your presence because you don't want anyone thinking that you might, you know, steal something, which is something I've been doing my whole life. Nita, growing up, were you conscious of anything of this nature? Um, well, I was in a workshop yesterday and I was workshopping a draft of a poem that I was, um, or, um, I was writing and there was a line in it and I, it, it went like, I was talking about my mother and the line went, she drops off her stateless daughter at school to count her blessings in Te Reo Māori and learn and perfect the dialect of the men who bombed her best friends. And at, at the end of um, my reading of my piece, there was a classmate of mine who is a white man, and he, the first thing he said to me was, um, what do you mean by this line? Like, this really triggered me. And I could see he was um, getting very visibly defensive. And in that moment, I was just like, I, I, I just turned to him and I just calmly said, um, no, I'm not saying that like, that all Kiwis or Kiwis at all were the ones who killed my best friends, or, but they do speak the language of the people who did. And um, a thing that that really highlighted for me was um, uh, growing up in high school especially, there was, um, I became increasingly aware of uh, how news outlets would react when the perpetrator of like, violent incidents were identified themselves as Muslim. Um, and I would always, I would Google those incidents and I'd be praying, I'd be praying, please, please don't be a Muslim. Like, I can't deal with the backlash if you are a Muslim, you know? And they'd end up being a Muslim and then there would be this expectation for me as a Muslim myself to condemn their actions and to apologize for it too, as if, I, as if they represent all of us as a whole. Whereas that one line in my poem, like that triggered that one classmate of mine so much because he thought I was grouping them all, grouping all white men to be the people who committed those atrocious acts to my friends, you know? And that, I think that was the first time maybe that he had dealt with being, um, dealt with like having the actions of one like affect him and he was very defensive about it. And I, I knew what he was feeling, and I could tell that if I were to like go attack back, you know, or like tell all this in, in a very um, heated way, that it would just escalate into something unnecessary. So I just told him calmly, and then he just he was like, okay, I understand. Nita, when we were talking yesterday, we we, we were talking about. Um, when you were at intermediate, yeah. uh, at, at around 10 or 11, it was the first time you kind of were conscious of really being part of, a, 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 of, of being marked out as being different. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about what happened there? Um, so I put on the hijab in year two. And so that's when um, I kind of first noticed that I was not the same as everyone around me. But the questions I'd get then would, would just be like, oh, what's that thing on your head? Which was from kids, and it was just out of a place of curiosity. They'd never seen someone like me, you know? And so I'd just be like, oh, yeah, like it's just a part of my belief because you can't really explain 
religion and like go into depth to kids because they don't understand. And that was fine for them. They'd be like, okay, and it was cool. They didn't like bother me anymore about it. They, they just wanted to know, they were curious. But um, when I got into intermediate in year seven, there was an incident where um, a white girl, I don't know how um, we got into this, but um, she, called, she said to me, why do you have a tea towel on your head? And at the time, I hadn't been bullied. Um, I hadn't experienced any, any hatred um, towards me because of my appearance or the religious attire that I choose to wear. And so I didn't recognize it as like an act of violence to myself at all. I just, all I knew was that it didn't make me feel good. I was like, I don't feel, this doesn't feel nice. And then the following year, there was a very intelligent white boy in my class. He was on top of everything, basically. And we were in class one day, and he just says to me, Osama bin Laden's granddaughter. And I didn't know who Osama bin Laden was. I was, <laughs> I was born in 1999, so um, I was a toddler when 9-11 happened. So, and I, I had no idea who Osama bin Laden was. All I could tell was from his tone that it was meant to be derogatory, that I, it wasn't meant to be a good thing. And I remember going home and like searching who he was. And I was like, oh, he's from my country, you know? And then searching what he'd done. And I remember like um, researching about 9-11, finding out, and I was, there were obviously at that point, it had been quite a few years since the incident. And so there were like articles and songs and lots of, um, lots of things like that. And I remember I was listening to a song in particular and I was like crying my eyes out because I was like, this is so tragic. But then I still didn't understand why I was being blamed or attacked for that. Victor, as I mentioned in, in your intro, you grew up in Christchurch. And yeah. You, <laughs> yeah, I did. You, and again, you, you were brought up by your Palangi mum, and you were a teenager when you were first starting to explore your Samoan origins. Mm -hmm. You eventually wrote about it in, in Sons, your first play, but it, I think it was in Christ Almighty, another one of your later plays, that you really focus on one of the experiences that you had as a teenager growing up in Christchurch. <laughs> Shall I share with the audience? Please do. <laughs> sure. Well, look, um, yeah, Christchurch Almighty is a cabaret that I put together for the last Christchurch Arts Festival where I really wanted to get across my point of view of having grown up in Christchurch as, you know, mixed race, Samoan Palangi. Um, and one of the stories that I put in there, which I tell as often as possible, was when I went to, and I was a little bit older than a teenager, um, I took a family friend to her school ball at Rangiruru, which is a, you know, lovely private school with lots of resources, maybe a few graduates in the audience as we speak. <laughs> and um, it was a, this is like 1992, 93. This was a Creatures of the Night theme um, school ball. And when I got there, so mixed race Samoan, mixed race Māori, my, my date, there were kids dressed in KKK outfits and there were kids dressed as skinheads, um, one with a swastika on his forehead and one with white power on his forehead. 
And so I was a little bit older than most of the kids uh, at the ball. And I went up, I always remember this, going up to um, a teacher um, and going, you're condoning this? Um, and I always remember he said, it's the kids' night, we can't really do anything. So I was reasonably cross, as you can imagine. Yeah, and that thing of being polite is, is a thing. You know, it's, I'm not that polite these days. And um, yeah, maybe we can get into that later. <laughs> we can but get into it said. now, honestly. <laughs> but using my good words, my, my inside words, um, you know, I wrote a letter to the then headmistress and said, look, this really disturbed me. I'd really like to talk about this. Got poo-pooed, wrote back a second time, uh, as a journalist with contacts at da 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 <laughs> let's meet. And so we met, and I did feel heard by her because we had the conversation. You know, this was genuinely a new way for her to look at this situation, seeing it through my eyes, and I did feel heard, but I always regret at the time not going public with that situation which is why I tell it as often as I can now. <laughs> yeah. It's, and that's not that long ago. And actually, I went back to Rangi uh, two years ago because I have a, a friend teaching there and, and told this story to the students. And I was like, well, do you think this would happen, something like this would happen now? And they were like, hell no. But then they were like, oh, oh wait, you know, Karen and Jenny came as terrorists at the last one. And I'm like, yeah, plus ça change, right? You know? Very Jenny, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, these, these things that we are hearing, these anecdotes we're hearing from, from everybody, they are very everyday. And one of the things that I was really struck by in your novel, Go Went Gone, was how at the beginning of that book, there is a huge, there's a wealth of quite ordinary, mundane detail, largely about Richard's life, and as, as it builds, as the novel goes on, it, it becomes clear that it's a way of showing the enormous gap that exists between where Richard lives and the kind of person that Richard is, and the group of refugees that he eventually comes to befriend. Was that your intention? <coughs> My intention as a writer was to let him meet these refugees, and it took me so many more pages than I expected it to take, you know. I was writing along, writing along, and it was like 30 pages until he somehow could meet them. So if you write, you know, you, you have an idea of how the book will be, but, but while writing, I, I could see that this, this gap you are speaking about, you know, that um, the worlds are so far, far apart from each other. The, the world, Richard is living in, in Berlin in the same city as Berlin in which the refugees are living in. It's, it's one city in one place, but uh, totally different perspectives uh, and uh, different ways of experiencing this kind of reality, and and it, it's uh, it wasn't easy to uh, 
even if I only wrote, it wasn't easy to get over this difference. Yeah. And the difference, the difference, of course, is not made by the, the like the surface, but the difference is made by the experiences of the people. So that uh, the reality, someone who uh, has been born in Berlin or like have been, has been living all his uh, life in Berlin, uh, even when Richard has some East German experience that makes him different too. Mm. Uh, what I wrote about uh, in the book. There's, there's constant well. parallels between yeah, of, some, of experience in, the, in your book. Yeah, and, and um, also the, the, the experiences the refugees are having remind him also of the experience he has got from being like a child of, of the Second World War and an East German and the change after the fall of the wall and things like that. So, so slowly he comes to connect and he sees that the connections are deeper than the differences in a way. But not the difference. The, the, um he, he approaches it like a project, which is fascinating, mm -hmm. where he sits down like he is an academic. So, and I wondered when, when I was reading it whether you went through the kind of experience it, that, and transformation that Richard did. A bit, yes, of <laughs> course. Um, I did some uh, research, or I, I, I did the research actually parallel to the book, to writing the book. Um, I waited for things to happen, and I was in a way also exploring my own prejudices and the prejudices of my friends. And sometimes I was, I, I was kind of, of really shocked and I, I could see that uh, just now in Germany, many people are shocked in this way when they learn that f former friends or companions in school all of a sudden change, they all seem to change their minds and, and say things like, uh, that there's one scene in my book where uh, um, one of the African refugees has toothache and then Richard, the main character, is asking a doctor uh, what, what could he do about it. And, and then the doctor would say, ah, he's African. Yeah, then you only need uh, like a medicine man dancing and then it will heal the, the tooth, you know, things like that. And this was what I experienced right. <laughs> during my, my research and during like being aware of the, of the racism. And uh, the, the doctor I was speaking to and who said so was uh, uh, like a former friend of my father. So he never said things like that before or we never heard him saying things like that, but all of a sudden they are like appearing. Surprise racism. Changing <laughs> also my like the world that I, I thought I knew, you know. What was the reaction to your book when it was published in Germany? Naya, um, I wrote it uh, in, in the two years before 2015, mm -hmm. and uh, it was published in August, August 2015, and in September all the refugees were there from coming from Syria. And um, although it, 
it was a book about African refugees. Of course, it, it, it was like more or less the only German novel about this issue. Yeah. So, so the, the people were like, there was an, a real need to read about this reality and these experiences of, of refugees. And there was a, a, deep, a deep interest and, and there were big audiences at my readings because it was just like Angela Merkel couldn't be there and it was me <laughs> in her place. So like asking like, what solution can we find for this kind of crisis, you know? And, and then I said, okay, I'm a writer and I, 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 I'm happy to put some questions, <laughs> but it's not that easy. And, um, but somehow I, it felt like having written the right book in the right time. And this, so, so that at least there was the no novel that would take uh, a bit of the fear of the so-called unknown from the Germans, you know, also yeah. like the feeling, how can one enter an asylum seeker's house without being raped, especially as a woman, you know, it's how can that be? And, and uh, somehow I... I felt like having done the right thing to say you can just enter the house and start talking to someone. You know, it's, that's it. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I want to pick up that phrase of yours, uh, Jenny, the, the right book at the right time, because I, I think that there is a common thread with everybody here tonight, that at some point there was a book that was meaningful because you were able to see yourself represented, but it was not easy to find, necessarily. So I'm going to start with you, Leonie. Was there a piece of literature where it was a turning point for you, where something or... Oh, we're at a literary festival. I should have one of those. <laughs> um, do you know what? It wasn't so much one writer as the realisation that the books that I had been consuming didn't have me in them anywhere. I got really obsessed with um, like English absurdists in my, in my teens, like George Bernard Shaw and um, Oscar Wilde, and then I got really into um, Kurt Vonnegut, and I was just so into these old white dudes <laughs> for so many years, and then one day I was just like, why? You know, I, I was trying to identify with this group of people I had nothing in common with. And Do you know why you did that? I don't. I still, I still really don't. Um, I mean, I had a fairly white upbringing. Um, I do know that for quite a large chunk of my life, assimilation was really important to me. Getting away with um, being as white as possible was really important to me, like blending in. Mm. Um, there was only sort of about three Māori kids at the primary school that I went to. Um, no te reo Māori was offered um, in classes, anything like that. Um, in fact, my mum tried really hard to get it into, I love this story too. into schools, um, as well as computers, but we had this ancient principal called Miss Crab. <laughs> of course. Yeah, who was adamant that there wouldn't be any te reo Māori and there wouldn't be any computers in her school. Um, but saying that when they opened the new uh, school hall, I was called upon to say a few words. So it was, you know, I was Māori when it suited them. Um, but I've been used to being the only brown person in the room for my whole life, except for 
when I seek out spaces that are all brown, which is what I do a lot now, because it feels amazing not being the only brown person in the room. Um, so yeah, there are lots of incredible um, women of colour writers that I, I love now, and I, I unfortunately I can't point to one, but I do know that there was a moment in my 20s where I was just like, enough white men. And it was probably to do with Brett Easton Ellis, because right. I think I might have read American Psycho and just gone, enough. <laughs> you know, I've, I've had enough of you violent white dudes in my life. I, I, need to, I need to get rid of it. David, I'm, I'm going to go back to you because, um, you know, we, one of the things that, um, that motivated you to write your last book, I think, too, was, was really it was, was also something of a nod to James Baldwin and the book he wrote to his nephew. So, and, that, and Baldwin was a really important influence for you. Yeah. At, um, uh, James Baldwin wrote um, The Fire Next Time, or with the, the book that we now know as The Fire Next Time, as a letter to his nephew. And it was the effort of you know, an African-American writer, really just an African-American man, to, um, to share what uh, he had understood about living as black in America with, with his nephew. And um, yeah, I guess, um, I mean, in, in answer to the question you've just asked, um, um, I had not read anything by a writer who was not white until I was 19. It was, there, was no such, there was no such thing in syllabi that I, uh, you know, that I uh, used in, in uh, classes or I, um, and um, I remember I, I was in a university library and I, I saw this spine of a book and um, the title said The Price of the Ticket and, and the author's name was James Baldwin and someone must have told me about that because I guess by that time, I'm very, very, you know, I, um, I'm finding it so moving what you were just sharing about being the, one of the only one, if not the only one in largely white contexts. And, and then negotiating life in, in that circumstance. But then knowing what it's like to be not the only one and to have a conversation that, in which a certain type of knowledge and experience is assumed. It doesn't have to be explained. Um, and so I think someone must have told me about this writer, James Baldwin. And I made the connection, seeing it up there on the, on the library stack, I pulled it down, I opened it, and I sat down on the carpet of the library you know, that gummy, you know, you know, <laughs> carpet. And I just couldn't move. It was this, a writer who had the audacity, the absolute audacity to think that his life mattered, that his experience as a black person growing up in America he was strong mattered. enough not to be polite. Pardon? <laughs> he was strong enough not to be polite. He was not being, he was, yeah, he was not, he was not being polite. I mean, um, and, and just, yeah, it was just one of the most moving things uh, to, to read that form of, of uh, bravery in writing. Um, but the interesting thing about the essay that I read, it was entitled The Stranger in, Stranger in the Village, and it's when Baldwin leaves America to live uh, for a little while in Switzerland, a very remote village in the Swiss Alps which he is the only one. And in that context, he not only talks about his personal experience, he talks about the world 
It's not that he's just, you know, expressing an experience. He's being, as he would put it, human. He is accounting for the world, but also his particular place in it and the particular insights that being in the body he has gives to the people of the world. And that's what made that essay so extraordinary. Um, Victor, you were touched by the Baldwin fire too, I understand, when you were younger. From the ages of 12 to 17, I pretty much read everything written by Jackie Collins, uh, Judith Krantz, Sidney Sheldon, you know, rich people having sex in glamorous places and quite challenging positions. Good basis. <laughs> but then, uh, a little bit like you, David, somehow I came across his book, Another Country, and I came across this book just uh, when I was starting, well, this, this, I, I, this is the book that hit just as I was starting to gain what I call my Samoan consciousness, where I'd stopped what I call being factually brown and started to become what I call actually brown. And this, um, this book, uh, which dealt with, uh, with race and with sexuality, because I was also dealing with my, my, my nascent sexuality at that stage, it just had such meaning for me. And, um, you know, I wrote about this a couple of years ago, because he's such an unlikely warrior when you look at it. He's like, you know, short, gap-toothed, you know, bug-eyed. But his, um, he's remained a touchstone ever since I picked up that first book. And that anger, he's one of those, those, those writers that's really taught me anger, anger is an energy and can be a fantastic energy when you can translate it onto the page. Absolutely. Yeah. Nita, you're, you're nodding. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in that, but I'm also interested in your experience because you're, you're actually, uh, part of your studies is around working towards being a writer to represent diversity and for, for children. Yeah, um, and um, as someone who's um, trying to write now, um, what I've noticed and what my, my tutors and my mentors have noticed is that a lot of my writing, especially towards the beginning, was just, just soaked in the passive voice. Like, I, I wasn't um, angry about anything. I was, it was as if I was, like, um, separate. I was like having, holding myself separate from like the experiences that I had as if I was like a third person watching in. Like I, I hadn't connected to those experiences yet. And which was surprising to me because I thought like, you know, after um, coming across the book that I did come across it um, when I was 12, which was The Glory Garage, um, which my uncle, he, he brought it back to me from Australia. And it's a book about... Um, Lebanese Muslims growing up in Australia. Mm. And I was, uh, growing up in New Zealand, I was just a massive bookworm. Like, um, we didn't have the funds, obviously, to have our own at-home library. So my home was the public library. I would go every single week and issue out the max amount of books you could, just 20, and I'd read them all in a couple days and then return them and just do the same thing over and over again. And what I realized after a while was that I wasn't in any of these books. There was, there was no one um, from where I was from, from Afghanistan, and, and there was no one who was Muslim in these stories, or if they were, like, they were just male, you know? And so when I was reading the, the Glory Garage, it was insane. It was the first time I was seeing people like me being represented and in a positive light. It was just everyday stories of, like, 
one of the things that I had massive struggles with, especially growing up, was um, finding appropriate clothing. Right. That was such a, such a huge struggle for me. Like, I would go to the mall with my mom, especially as a preteen, when I wanted to be cool like everyone else and dress like everyone else. And I'd bring a dress or something, and she'd be like, you know, it's, like, um, it's not uh, past your knee. It's above your knee. You can't wear that. It's, it's not, you can't wear that. It's too immodest. Or I'd bring jeans, and she'd be like, okay, if you wear jeans, you have to wear something long on top of it so to cover up you know, your shape. And I was just... So frustrated. And then in the book, when I was reading it, uh, there was a story about um, a Muslim girl who was trying to find a prom dress that, or a ball dress that suited both um, her parents' sort of like requirements and also was something that she wanted to wear as well. And it was just insane seeing like my own experiences in a literary form, like, you know, I'd never seen that. I'd read so many books in, in, my sh in that short amount of time, um, but I had never come across any kind of stories where I was in them. And so the Gloria Garage was, like, massive for me. And then it, that was the turning point in my life where I stopped trying so hard to be white, you know, trying so hard to be like everyone else, where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not white. I'm... I'm Afghan, I'm Muslim, I, I don't look like everyone else. I, my home life is different to everyone else's. Or like The things that I do, the way I um, navigate through everyday life is different to other people's, and that's okay. And that's completely fine. I'm fine the way I am. And I thought like I had come to terms with that. And then when I started my studies and started writing, especially through my poetry as well, um, my mentors would just come up to me and they'd be like, you know, this would be really great if you put some more anger in it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they'd be like, you, this is really good, but like, you, it, it, I think it can hit harder. And I'd be like, I, th I thought I was already hitting it as hard as I could, you know? And then I would look back on it and be like, this is really passive. I don't know why I'm being so passive still. When I'm discussing something like this, I thought I'd overcome that passivity. I thought I'd, I'd be, I'd... Um, I felt comfortable with who I was. And then it was, just, yeah, it was, it was a really strange thing to be brought up to me, like, especially now. Jenny, did you find anger in those refugees that you were dealing with when you were, before you wrote your, your book? Did you find that? Yeah, of course, we had, um, we had many talks about their daily experiences, like being checked many more times in the, in the subway, for instance, if they have got tickets and things like that. So, um, so they are like, uh, the, the question with the African refugees is that they are like uh, wearing their passport on their skin. So if there's uh, some, let's say Syrian refugees, <laughs> they, they are, you know, they are having a, a skin that is more similar, so they could perhaps seem to be like Turkish people yeah. in Berlin. But the Africans, yeah. they are very well to be seen <laughs> and to be recognized. So they have made many experiences, um, uh, especially in the offices. And yeah, even for, for me, uh, of course, in the, after 2015, there were some Germans who would accompany refugees to the offices to help with the translations and so on. And, um, and even for me, it was 
Did you feel angry? <laughs> to, you know, that the people in the offices were like offending to me because I was some of these persons who accompanied <laughs> the Did refugees. that surprise you? In a way, yes, because uh, Naya, you see, there are so many people listening to me, <laughs> but if there's someone in the office not paying attention at all, it's, it's like, uh, and, and uh, you couldn't get through it. You, you, you would try to explain something. We brought some papers. We, he, he filled it out, and he, he has been doing so well in school and things like that. And she would just say, this doesn't interest me now. Mm. You know, it's like, like, like a wall. And um, yeah, this was a kind of a shock. But Surprising. Yeah, Experience. it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, as a writer, it's just interesting, but as a person, it was a shock. <laughs> yeah. David, I want to talk to you about anger, and I, I want to take. Um, I want to talk about a quote from your book. Um, and this was, and, and it, it was interesting how in your book there is an echo of what happened in Christchurch, because in 2017 there was a shooting in a mosque in, in Quebec. Six people were killed, and not dissimilar circumstances. Um, and uh, in your book, you're with your daughter and you're thinking about how to talk to both your daughter and son, really, about this experience. I, and you, you say, we are not Muslim. We do not face Islamophobia, the specificity and intensity of that bigotry. Just as we are not indigenous, we do not know that particular legacy of violence and survival. But the fact is that I require little imagination to understand what it feels like to be considered dispensable by the powerful within a country to be viewed as unconnected to the fabric of Canadian society or as a threat singled out in lines and at borders, visibly targeted by those who are, in fact, the most secure. I do not emphasize, empathize, I should say, with the victims of bigotry or racism. I know the feeling intimately and viscerally. So, are you angry? Do you get angry? Yeah, absolutely. Is this on? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a book um, by Claudia Rankine. She's an American poet. And she uh, wrote, a, you have to read this book if you're interested in everyday racism. Um, it's entitled Citizen. And um, the interesting thing about this book is that she describes all of these incidents in which these, let's call them characters, experience questions, you know, where are you from? Um, but you never know the, know the circumstance, you know, you, the, the racial identity of the, of the people are never specified, but you know the language, you know the encounters, you know, um, and that's often how racism works, how everyday casual racism works. There's also violent acts of racism, uh, you know, clear acts of racism that are different from those. But in that book, she, um, I mean, I, I agree 100% that um, anger is a powerful and important emotion that can be channeled into extremely productive pushes for justice. Um, that's, that's just history. That's, 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 what, that's what anger can do. Um, 
In that book, though, um, when you asked me, am I ang angry, um, I, I hope that, you know, what I, uh, what I don't want to be, you know, racism destroys life. In its most extreme forms, it does that by, by death. And that's, that's historical fact. That's ongoing fact. But racism destroys life also because then you simply become a reaction to something. You don't live complexly as a human being the way others do, the way you deserve to live. And so I don't want to be always angry, number one. I want to enjoy a range of emotions. I want to use anger when, it, when I need to use anger, and I want to be unashamed of being angry, angry about certain things. But I don't want to live in a state of constant anger. I also do not want to perform anger for audiences and expect that, that that's the way I'm supposed to be. Um, and that's what uh, brings me to Citizen. She, in, a, in a part of the book, she, she talks about a YouTube artist who talks about how um, I'm a person of, of mixed ancestry as well. My mother is of African descent. My, my father is South Asian. Um, and in, in, this, uh, in this book, uh, Claudia Rankine talks about a, a black YouTuber who makes a spoof about being an, an angry black artist and how to market that. And um, she says, you know, this is a joke because the real anger um, is just eats away at your soul in a very quiet way and is not spectacular and it is not loud all the time. It is, it is a soul-destroying force in your life. And the implication is that um, um, it is at once a highly productive thing and it's also something that she wishes to she wishes to question and, and also um, not have that, the single kind of context for living, I guess. Do you ever get weary, David, of being tasked, and do you see it this way, with explaining the experience of racism? Yes, yeah, I do. Um, and I, I say that with humility because I think all of us have something to share based on our, our personal experiences. And I think we, we should, I think we should try in many contexts to share what we know um, in deep embodied ways, in lived ways with others. That's just part of the price of the ticket of being human I'm, I'm talking about. But um, I know someone, um, another book I'd, I'd throw out there, um, a, a writer, a UK writer, Rennie Edo, Lodge, who wrote a book entitled, Why I'm Not Talking About Racism with White People. And she's not trying to be disrespectful by saying that. It's just that she feels tired about framing the discussion of racism in ways that have to go back to fundamentals, such as, oh, well, I first have to explain to you that there is something called racism. Um, whereas maybe, maybe I don't want to do that. I, if, you, if you don't see that, then maybe the conversation isn't worth having at, at, at this point. I'd rather have a conversation with people who, who have that as a starting point, have those experiences. Maybe we can talk about the nuances of that and how to live um, in, in, in that particular context. And the other thing I'd just say is, you know, I'm a, I'm a fiction writer primarily. I wrote this last book as a letter to my daughter about the politics of race and belonging, knowing that others would read it. And again, I'm, I, I, I do that 
with, with, an, as, uh, with a position of humility and also um, that's what I want for this book. I want, I want uh, it's really for my daughter very sincerely, but I, 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 I'd hope that other people may find it interesting. Um, but as a fiction writer, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to capture life. And again, if we, if we understand that that's what racism does, it destroys life, it destroys your ability to feel, it, it destroys your ability to um, experience the full range and, and wonder of being human, um, because it traps you, it corners you, it boxes you in, um, it destroys and numbs you. Um, day by day, it beats you down. Um, and if fiction is that effort, that very fragile effort to, to represent life, and reading is that fragile effort to encounter life, um, then um, that's also what I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to work with, too. And so, uh, you know, I, I have sympathy when you said, you know, I'm, I'm just a fiction writer. Um, every time I hear myself on stage, and it's been many times to speak about racism, I think that's, that's not quite it. That's, I have, I, there's, I, you know, I, I said something, but I'm not sure if that's, that's it. And I'm still in the process of reaching for what it is. And I know that what it is, is not racism. It is life. Life in a black body. Life in a colored person's body. Life in a male body. Life in, you know, that's, that's one, that's part of it. You, you've got a beautiful phrase in your book, which I will, uh, called, lum uh, you talk to your daughter about uh, luminous specificity, which I, I, I sort of saw your, your daughter almost haloed in that, and I thought that was a beautiful description. But, uh, Leonie, I want to talk to you, because you, um, you are in the non-fiction sphere, and you chose very deliberately to step away from mainstream journalism. You were a very successful mainstream journalist, but you, you work in te ao Māori world. Is that because you feel an obligation to explain and clarify and shine a light? Um, and who for? Firstly, not a very successful mainstream journalist. Um, <laughs> but the great oh, thing... I've read your stories. <laughs> the, the great thing about working in Māori media is you actually don't have to go back to the beginning where you have to prove racism exists all the time, which is the basis of most conversations about racism with a, um, with a, a white audience. Um, your audience know that it exists. The base level is colonization in this country is a thing that has happened. It has had negative effects on us and our culture in X, Y, Z ways. Um, so I get to start with that as, as the foundation and work my way up from there. So the conversations you're having once you've all established and understood that racism is a thing that still affects us, that we're still feeling the effects of colonization, the conversations you get to have on top of that are much more interesting and they're much more nuanced and you get to look at... So um, I'm a big fan of the work of Moana Jackson, Dr Moana Jackson. I encourage everyone here, if you have never heard him talk or read anything, um, he is, to my mind, the country's leading expert, I guess, on the effects of racism and colonisation on all of us. Um, and he talks about the two kinds of racism which everyone here will recognise, and that is um, the racism of the body, which has been um, 
profiled, your black or your brown body being profiled and deemed by another person as untrustworthy or looking poor or looking stupid or whatever. And then he also talks about racism of space. And that is the spaces we occupy, the institutions that we're part of, and they're quite different forms of racism. Um, the racism of space is the hardest bit to define. It's the bit that we feel daily um, and it's the hardest to explain to someone who's never had it. Um, and so my favourite thing about Māori media is talking to an audience who understands racism of space because then you get to really dissect what that is together. And because you're writing with this default Māori worldview, like that is the, that's the default worldview in my news sphere and, mm. and the people that I work with, the writers that I work with, um, non-Māori or, or um, non-brown people get to participate in that conversation, but uh, on our terms, and that makes it easier for them to see what we mean by racism of space, if that makes sense. I think so, and I, I, I sort of want to go to you, Victor, because it, I think what Leonie is talking about touches on, on what you're currently doing. You're in a leadership course. Yeah, <laughs> I am. Um, with, 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 so you're not writing currently, but you are working with a group who are, for want of a better term, probably from the corporate world. And that is putting you in touch with, and having conversations about probably structural racism of the kind that, kind of conversation they're, they're unused to. Yeah, and I think maybe one or two of them are in the audience tonight. And look, it's, um, it's, uh, it's 36 people in this leadership course, which is a year long. We have three-day retreats every, about every six weeks. It's 33 business sector, three creatives, including myself. You know, it's white dominance, reasonably diverse. And, you know, at, uh, two retreats ago, you know, in terms of um, being polite, you know, I'd bitten my tongue three times one morning, um, uncharacteristically, and then, you know, towards the end, towards the end of our why, last session. Why are you session, biting your tongue? Just out of curiosity. Why? Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, thing that I unpacked with some friends. And part of it, when we bite our tongues, I think, is just to make white people not uncomfortable. So we internalize the, we have the thought, but we're not saying it out loud, kind of not to make them uncomfortable. But this particular day, I went, fuck it. <laughs> and I said, I want all the white people in this room to know that when you're dealing with minorities, generally they will be biting their tongue at some stage during the day and not saying what they really think. And that, as you may can imagine, had a spectrum of response in the room where some people took it very personally, other people were really curious and going, you know, I had genuinely had no idea. And it was uncomfortable. Um, and we had another uncomfortable conversation just this past week where we had someone defending the mana of James Cook. And you know, this is someone I actually connect with. And I was just thinking, I've been thinking this a lot since I dropped my little race bomb, is that if we as a microcosm of New Zealand can't have that conversation together as an us, instead of peeling off into an us versus them, where we're going, all the brownies are getting together and going, bloody white people, and all the whiteies are getting together and going, bloody brown people, 
because it really had the potential to spin off into us versus them. If we can't sit in that quite uncomfortable space as an us and have the conversation as us with someone that really supports the manner of James Cook, with someone that really doesn't, then how does that change when we go to our respective organizations? It's very clear to me this. Can I, can I ask um, Jenny, you, and I'll, I'll come to you, David, but I, I'm curious about the uncomfortable conversation in your countries around race. Yeah, the, um, the, 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 discussion, the discussion changed in the course of the last years a bit because the, uh, the right-wing parties uh, gained more power. And I think this is uh, always the core of racism, the question of power. Or who gets power over someone else um, by, uh, by uh, like being racist. So, um, and the, the, the sad thing about the discussion, especially in East Germany, is that uh, as I see it, in a way, the, the East Germans that were the, like the losers after the fall of the wall gain power by becoming racist now. So this is a complex structure. It's not just saying, I don't like black people or something like that. It's like saying, I'm better than someone else. Is it I'm economic? Economically? I, the, the, the economics? Yeah, does that come into play? I think the, the um, of course, it's also a question of uh, like being afraid of uh, uh, that. That's like like being envious, being afraid of losing something that you have to work hard for, and others just get like this without knowing the laws that make it very difficult for refugees to get whatever money from the government. Um, just being afraid, and, and I think the, 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 like the, the core of the racism is the, the fear on one side and the idea of becoming s as someone who, who has some power over others. And, and also by using the racism as an instrument to, um, you know, to to be seen yourself. So the, 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 the people in the East, in a way, now are listened to because they say the bad things. Right. You know, so they, they gain power by going the detour about race, uh, concerning racism. And, and this is a very complex, strange construction. And, and uh, they, they don't pay attention to the reasons that made the people flee from their countries, from mm. Afghanistan or from Syria. So, you know, they, they don't look at the things they have in common with these people, like the, the fear of the real uh, uh, violent Islamists or um, the, the fear of losing home. Mm. You know, the, the refugees already have, have been gone through the fear of losing home because they already lost their homes. So, so they, they don't see the things that they have in common with these people, but they, they try to 
make themselves stronger by stepping on someone else. Of course. I'm going to just... Um, I'm just conscious of the fact that um, we probably uh, need to open the floor for some questions now. Um, just to give people the chance to talk. So I, um, sorry, David, I was going to come to you, but I would love to give our audience a chance to, to ask our wonderful panellists some questions. So we are just going to crank up our microphone here, and I'm going to open the floor and see if there is somebody who would like to put a question to our, our great panellists. <laughs> being shy. And it's, it's probably because they're in trance with what, what, what you guys are saying. That's the important thing. There's an audience. So. <laughs> Why don't we pick people? Yeah. <laughs> we have a hand over there. This is your opportunity. Somebody down here? Please come on up. Thank you so much. This is more to the women in the panel. I wonder if you have a comment on, if you can differentiate it at all, any ranking system in terms of whether sexism has been more of an issue than racism or vice versa. Yeah, <laughs> please do, Leone. Uh, the great thing about being a woman of color is that you get it both barrels. Um, depending on what you're talking about. So I um, have a feminist podcast and TV series and write about TV series, it's on the internet, um, and write about that a lot. Um, but there's always, so I get a lot of abuse on social media for that, feminazi, etc. Um, and then you get like a couple of sort of racist digs in there as well. And then if I'm writing about Māori culture and history and if I mention unfairness in any way, then I get like the super racist abuse um, and then like a couple of the dumb chick kind of comments as well. So you get like both and it's just like this delightful juggling act. Gets better when you get older. Yeah, well, yes, yeah. <laughs> Chuck in a bit of ages. Yeah, so you get, um, I mean, I couldn't rank which one was my favorite if I had to. Um, they're, they're equally eye-opening. Certainly both five for your attention. Um, I think for me, um, so I minor in anthropology, right? And uh, there was a reading we had to do. Um, last semester, we had a paper on race and ethnicity. And there was a reading we had to do on white privilege. And it was really strange and eye-opening for me because for me, I don't think that I don't necessarily think that I'm like a, a victim of racism uh, more so than like uh, a victim of xenophobia or Islamophobia because, and I've had these comments from my own teachers in the past, they're like, if you take off your headscarf, we think you're a white. I am white passing, my, my skin is very light. And um, I, the, the, the article, the reading itself um, highlighted some, some experiences of privilege and then I was thinking to myself, I was reflecting about my own experiences 
because my mother, she is, um, she's very visibly darker than I am. Her English comes with an accent. And um, when we go through, it, through airport security, um, especially in the past, uh, I, my mother would be taken aside and she'd be taken to a separate room and searched, and I would be fine. Or uh, the only thing I would see is when we'd come back to New Zealand, we'd have all our luggage hand searched and then scanned, and then we'd be free to go. It was so tiring. Um, and then when I was uh, reading that, that reading and, and she was talking about the different forms of privilege, say is like the, an easy airport experience or not having to defend your whole group that you represent, you know? And I was thinking, I had so often thought of myself as like, as a victim or as a part of the, as a part of the minority that was always attacked. And then I, it was really shocking for me to realize that I also had white privilege. I, I was, because my journey through airport security was significantly easier than my mother's. And I thought that was down to like me being um, a minor at the time that I was traveling with my mother. But then more recently, I went traveling overseas on my own. And it was so easy. And that's because I am lighter skinned. And my English is, it doesn't come with an accent that's different from everyone else's or too, too much different, you know, very different. And so, and the thing that she used to describe, like, um, how, how she seg segued into um, the topic of white privilege was because she identified as a feminist herself. And she was like, I'm always fighting um, these men who don't acknowledge male privilege. And then, and she, and then she went into the, t um, the topic of, like, this is, I thought, so I thought about how I, as a woman, also, as a white woman, also just don't acknowledge my white privilege. It's just something that I've been conditioned not to think about, like how men have been conditioned not to think about their privilege as well. So I think it's sort of like a thing that goes, that, sorry, that goes hand in hand. And yeah. Can I just add that if you can like acknowledge your white privilege, then everyone can. <laughs> I just really would like to emphasize that. Right, that's awesome. I think that brings us very wonderfully to, to the end of this session. It was a really good note to end on. Um, I'd like to thank all of our incredible panelists. So David, Victor, Jenny, Nida, and Leone. Can we have a huge round of applause, please? You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.